Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions 1. The three or four to let boards had stood within the low paling as long as the inhabitants of the little triangular square could remember, and if they had ever been vertical, it was a very long time ago. They now overhung the palings, each at its own angle, and resembled nothing so much as a row of wooden choppers, ever in the act of falling upon some passer-by, yet never cutting off a tenant for the old house from the stream of his fellows. Not that there ever was any great stream through the square. The stream passed a furlong and more away, beyond the intricacy of tenements and alleys and byways that had sprung up since the old house had been built, hemming it in completely, and probably the house itself was only suffered to stand pending the falling in of a lease or two, when doubtless a clearance would be made of the whole neighbourhood. It was of bloomy old red brick, and built into its walls were the crowns and clasped hands and other insignia of insurance companies long since defunct. The children of the secluded square had swung upon the low gate at the end of the entrance alley until little more than the solid top bar of it remained, and the alley itself ran past boarded basement windows on which tramps had chalked their cryptic marks. The path was washed and worn unevenly by the spilling of water from the eaves of the encroaching next house, and cats and dogs had made the approach their own. The chances of a tenant did not seem such as to warrant the keeping of the toilette boards in a state of legibility and repair, and as a matter of fact, they were not so kept. For six months Oleron had passed the old place twice a day or oftener, on his way from his lodgings to the room ten minutes' walk away he had taken to work in, and for six months no hatchet-like notice-board had fallen across his path. This might have been due to the fact that he usually took the other side of the square, but he chanced one morning to take the side that ran past the broken gate and the rain-worn entrance alley, and to pause before one of the inclined boards. The board bore, beside the agent's name, the announcement, written apparently about the time of Oleron's own early youth, that the key was to be had at number six. Now Oleron was already paying for his separate bedroom and workroom, more than an author who without private means habitually disregards his public can afford. And he was paying in addition a small rent for the storage of the greater part of his grandmother's furniture. Moreover, it invariably happened that the book he wished to read in bed was at his working quarters half a mile and more away, while the note or letter he had sudden need of during the day was as likely as not to be in the pocket of another coat hanging behind his bedroom door and there were other inconveniences in having a divided domicile. Therefore, Oleron, brought suddenly up by the hatchet-like notice-board, looked first down through some scanty privet bushes at the boarded basement windows, then up at the blank and grimy windows of the first floor, and so up to the second floor and the flat stone coping of the leads. He stood for a minute, thumbing his lean and shaven jaw, then, with another glance at the board, he walked slowly across the square to number six. He knocked and waited for two or three minutes, but although the door stood open, received no answer. He was knocking again when a long-nosed man in shirt sleeves appeared. 
I was asking a blessing on our food, he said in severe explanation. Oleron asked if he might have the key of the old house, and the long-nosed man withdrew again. Oleron waited for another five minutes on the step, then the man, appearing again and masticating some of the food of which he had spoken, announced that the key was lost. But you won't want it, he said. The entrance door ain't closed, and a push will open any of the others. I'm an agent for it if you're thinking of taking it. Oleron recrossed the square, descended the two steps at the broken gate, passed along the alley, and turned in at the old wide doorway. To the right, immediately within the door, steps descended to the roomy cellars, and the staircase before him had a carved rail, was broad and handsome and filthy. Oleron ascended it, avoiding contact with the rail and wall, and stopped at the first landing. A door facing him had been boarded up, but he pushed at that on his right hand, and an insecure bolt or staple yielded. He entered the empty first floor. He spent a quarter of an hour in the place, and then came out again. Without mounting higher, he descended and recrossed the square to the house of the man who had lost the key. Can you tell me how much the rent is? he asked. The man mentioned a figure, the comparative lowness of which seemed accounted for by the character of the neighbourhood and the abominable state of unrepair of the place. Would it be possible to rent a single floor? The long-nosed man didn't know. They might. Who were they? The man gave Oleron the name of a firm of lawyers in Lincoln's Inn. You might mention my name, Barrett, he added. Pressure of work prevented Oleron from going down to Lincoln's Inn that afternoon, but he went on the morrow, and was instantly offered the whole house as a purchase for fifty pounds down, the remainder of the purchase money to remain on mortgage. It took him half an hour to disabuse the lawyer's mind of the idea that he wished anything more of the place than to rent a single floor of it. This made certain hums and haws of a difference, and the lawyer was by no means certain that it lay within his power to do as Oleron suggested. But it was finally extracted from him that, provided the notice boards were allowed to remain up, and that, provided it was agreed that in the event of the whole house letting, the arrangement should terminate automatically without further notice, something might be done. That the old place should suddenly let over his head seemed to Oleron the slightest of risks to take, and he promised a decision within the week. On the morrow he visited the house again, went through it from top to bottom, and then went home to his lodgings to take a bath. He was immensely taken with that portion of the house he had already determined should be his own, scraped clean and repainted, and with that old furniture of Oleron's grandmother's, it ought to be entirely charming. He went to the storage warehouse to refresh his memory of his half-forgotten belongings and to take measurements, and thence he went to a decorator's. He was very busy with his regular work and could have wished the notice board had caught his attention either a few months earlier or else later in the year, but the quickest way would be to suspend work entirely until after his removal. A fortnight later, his first floor was painted throughout in a tender elderflower white. The paint was dry, and Oleron was in the middle of his installation. He was animated, delighted, and he rubbed his hands as he polished and made disposals of his grandmother's effects. The tall lattice-paned china cupboard with its derby and mason and spode, the large folding Sheraton table, the long low bookshelves, he had two of them copied, the chairs, the Sheffield candlesticks, the riveted rose bowls. 
These things he set against his newly painted elder white walls, walls of wood panelled in the happiest proportions, and moulded and coffered to the low-seated window recesses in a mood of gaiety and rest that the builders of rooms no longer know. The ceilings were lofty and faintly painted with an old pattern of stars. Even the tapering mouldings of his iron fireplace were as delicately designed as jewellery, and Olron walked about rubbing his hands, frequently stopping for the mere pleasure of the glimpses from white room to white room. Charming, charming, he said to himself. I wonder what Elsie Bengough will think of this. He bought a bolt and a Yale lock for his door, and shut off his quarters from the rest of the house. If he now wanted to read in bed, his book could be had for stepping into the next room. All the time he thought how exceedingly lucky he was to get the place. He put up a hat-rack in the little square hall, and hung up his hats and caps and coats, and passes through the small triangular square late at night, looking up over the little serried row of wooden toilet hatchets, could see the light within Oleron's red blinds, or else the sudden darkening of one blind and the illumination of another, as Oleron, candlestick in hand, passed from room to room, making final settlings of his furniture, or preparing to resume the work that his removal had interrupted. 2. As far as the chief business of his life, his writing was concerned, Paul Oleron treated the world a good deal better than he was treated by it, but he seldom took the trouble to strike a balance or to compute how far at forty-four years of age he was behind his points on the handicap. To have done so wouldn't have altered matters, and it might have depressed Oleron. He had chosen his path and was committed to it beyond possibility of withdrawal. Perhaps he had chosen it in the days when he had been easily swayed by something a little disinterested, a little generous, a little noble, and had he ever thought of questioning himself, he would still have held to it, that a life without nobility and generosity and disinterestedness was no life for him. Only quite recently, and rarely, had he even vaguely suspected that there was more in it than this, but it was no good anticipating the day when he supposed he would reach that maximum point of his powers beyond which he must inevitably decline, and be left face to face with the question whether it would not have profited him better to have ruled his life by less exigent ideals. In the meantime, his removal into the old house with the insurance marks built into its brick merely interrupted Romilly Bishop at the fifteenth chapter. As this tall man with a lean ascetic face moved about his new abode, arranging, changing, altering, hardly yet into his working stride again, he gave the impression of almost spinster-like precision and nicety. For twenty years past, in a score of lodgings, garrets, flats and rooms furnished and unfurnished, he had been accustomed to do many things for himself, and he had discovered that it saves time and temper to be methodical. He had arranged with the wife of the long-nosed Barrett, a stout Welshwoman with a falsetto voice, the Marionethshire accent of which long residence in London had not perceptibly modified, to come across the square each morning to prepare his breakfast, and also to turn the place out on Saturday mornings, and for the rest he even welcomed a little housework as a relaxation from the strain of writing. His kitchen, together with the adjoining strip of an apartment into which a modern bath had been fitted, overlooked the alley at the side of the house, 
and at one end of it was a large closet with a door and a square sliding hatch in the upper part of the door. This had been a powder closet, and through the hatch the elaborately dressed head had been thrust to receive the click and puff of the powder pistol. Oleron puzzled a little over this closet. Then, as its use occurred to him, he smiled faintly, a little moved. He knew not by what. He would have put it to a very different purpose from its original one. It would probably have to serve as his larder. It was in this closet that he made a discovery. The back of it was shelved, and rummaging on an upper shelf that ran deeply into the wall, Oleron found a couple of mushroom-shaped old wig stands. He didn't know how they'd come to be there. Doubtless the painters had turned them up somewhere or other and had put them there. But his five rooms as a whole were short of cupboard and closet room, and it was only by the exercise of some ingenuity that he was able to find places for the bestowal of his household linen, his boxes, and his seldom-used but not-to-be-destroyed accumulations of papers. It was in early spring that Oleron entered on his tenancy, and he was anxious to have Romilly ready for publication in the coming autumn. Nevertheless, he didn't intend to force its production. Should it demand longer in the doing, so much the worse. He realised its importance, its crucial importance, in his artistic development, and it must have its own length and time. In the workroom he had recently left, he had been making excellent progress. Romilly had begun, as the saying is, to speak and act of herself, and he didn't doubt she would continue to do so the moment the distraction of his removal was over. This distraction was almost over. He told himself it was time he pulled himself together again, and on a March morning he went out, returned again with two great bunches of yellow daffodils, placed one bunch on his mantelpiece between the Sheffield sticks and the other on the table before him, and took out the half-completed manuscript of Romilly Bishop. But before beginning work, he went to a small rosewood cabinet and took from a drawer his checkbook and passbook. He totted them up, and his monk-like face grew thoughtful. His installation had cost him more than he had intended it should, and his balance was rather less than fifty pounds with no immediate prospect of more. Mmm, I'd forgotten rugs and chintz curtains and so forth mounted up so, said Oleron. But it would have been a pity to spoil the place for the want of ten pounds or so. Well, Romilly simply must be out for the autumn. That's all. So here goes. He drew his papers towards him, but he worked badly, or rather, he did not work at all. The square outside had its own noises, frequent and new, and Oleron could only hope that he would speedily be accustomed to these. First came hawkers with their carts and cries. At midday the children, returning from school, trooped into the square and swung on Oleron's gate, and when the children had departed again for afternoon school, an itinerant musician with a mandolin posted himself beneath Oleron's window and began to strum. This was a not unpleasant distraction and Oleron, pushing up his window, threw the man a penny. Then he returned to his table again. But it was no good. He came to himself at long intervals to find that he had been looking about his room and wondering how it had formerly been furnished, whether a settee in buttercup or petunia satin had stood under the farther window, whether from the centre moulding of the light lofty ceiling had depended a glimmering crystal chandelier, or whether tambour frame or the piquet table had stood. Now it was no good. 
He had far better be frankly doing nothing than getting fruitlessly tired, and he decided that he would take a walk, but chancing to sit down for a moment, dozed in his chair instead. This won't do, he yawned when he awoke at half past four in the afternoon. I must do better than this tomorrow. And he felt so deliciously lazy that for some minutes he even contemplated the breach of an appointment he had for the evening. The next morning he sat down to work without even permitting himself to answer one of his three letters, two of them tradesmen's accounts, the third a note from Miss Bengough, forwarded from his old address. It was a jolly day of white and blue, with a gay noisy wind and a subtle turn in the colour of growing things, and over and over again, once or twice a minute, his room became suddenly light and then subdued again, as the shining white clouds rolled northeastwards over the square. The soft, fitful illumination was reflected in the polished surface of the table and even in the foot-worn old floor, and the morning noises had begun again. Oleron made a pattern of dots on the paper before him, and then he broke off to move the jar of daffodils exactly opposite the centre of a creamy panel. Then he wrote a sentence that ran continuously for a couple of lines, after which it broke into notes and jottings. For a time he succeeded in persuading himself that in making these memoranda he was really working. Then he rose and began to pace his room. As he did so, he was struck by an idea. It was, perhaps, a thought too pale. It was that the place might possibly be a little better for more positive colour. It was, perhaps, a thought too pale, mild and sweet as a kind old face, but a little devitalised, even one. Yes, decidedly it would bear a robuster note, more and richer flowers, and possibly some warm and gay stuff for cushions for the window seats. Of course, I can't really afford it, he muttered, as he went for a two-foot and began to measure the width of the window recesses. In stooping to measure a recess, his attitude suddenly changed to one of interest and attention. Presently he rose again, rubbing his hands with gentle glee. Oh, 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 he said, these look to me very much like window boxes nailed up. We must look into this. Yes, those are boxes where I am, oh, oh, this is an adventure. On that wall of his sitting-room there were two windows, the third was in another corner, and beyond the open bedroom door on the same wall was another. The seats of all had been painted, repainted and painted again, and Oleron's investigating finger had barely detected the old nail-heads beneath the paint. Under the ledge over which he stooped, an old keyhole had also been putted up. Oleron took out his penknife. He worked carefully for five minutes and then went into the kitchen for a hammer and chisel. Driving the chisel cautiously under the seat, he started the whole lid slightly. Again, using the penknife, he cut along the hinged edge and outward along the ends, and then he fetched a wedge and a wooden mallet. Now for our little mystery, he said. The sound of the mallet on the wedge seemed in that sweet and pale apartment somehow a little brutal nay, even shocking. The panelling rang and rattled and vibrated to the blows like a sounding board. The whole house seemed to echo. From the roomy cellarage to the garrets above, a flock of echoes seemed to awake, and the sound got a little on Oleron's nerves. All at once he paused, fetched a duster, and muffled the mallet. When the edge was sufficiently raised, he put his fingers under it and lifted. 
The paint flaked and starred a little. The rusty old nails squeaked and grunted, and the lid came up, laying open the box beneath. Oleron looked into it, save for a couple of inches of scurf and mould and old cobwebs. It was empty. No treasure there, said Oleron, a little amused that he should have fancied there might have been. Romilly will still have to be out by autumn. Let's have a look at the others. He turned to the second window. The raising of the two remaining seats occupied him until well into the afternoon. That of the bedroom, like the first, was empty, but from the second seat of his sitting room he drew out something yielding and folded and furred over an inch thick with dust. He carried the object into the kitchen, and having swept it over a bucket, took a duster to it. It was some sort of a large bag of an ancient frieze-like material, and when unfolded it occupied the greater part of the small kitchen. In shape it was an irregular, a very irregular triangle, and it had a couple of white flaps, and the remains of straps and buckles. The patch that had been uppermost in the folding was of a faded yellowish-brown, but the rest of it was shades of crimson that varied according to the exposure of the parts of it. Now whatever can that have been? Oleron mused as he stood surveying it. I give up. Whatever it is, it's settled my work for today, I'm afraid. He folded the object up carelessly and thrust it into the corner of the kitchen. Then, taking pans and brushes and an old knife, he returned to the sitting room and began to scrape and wash and to line with paper his newly discovered receptacles. When he had finished, he put his spare boots and books and papers into them, and he closed the lids again, amused with his little adventure, but also a little anxious, for the hour had come when he should settle fairly down to his work again. 3. It piqued Oleron a little that his friend, Miss Bengough, should dismiss with a glance the place he himself had found so singularly winning. Indeed, she scarcely lifted her eyes to it. But then she had always been more or less like that, a little indifferent to the graces of life, careless of appearances, and perhaps a shade more herself when she ate biscuits from a paper bag than when she dined with greater observance of the conveniences. She was an unattached journalist of thirty-four, large, showy, fair as butter, pink as a dog-rose, reminding one of a florist's picked specimen bloom, and given to sudden and ample movements and moist and explosive utterances. She pulled a better living out of the pool, as she expressed it, than Oleron did, and by cunningly disguised puffs of drapers and haberdashers she pulled also the greater part of her very varied wardrobe. She left small whirlwinds of air behind her when she moved, in which her veils and scarves fluttered and spun. Oleron heard the flurry of her skirts on his staircase and her single loud knock at his door when he had been a month in his new abode. Her garments brought in the outer air, and she flung a bundle of ladies' journals down on a chair. Don't knock off for me, she said, across a mouthful of large-headed hatpins as she removed her hat and veil. I didn't know whether you were straight yet, so I brought some sandwiches for lunch. You've got coffee, I suppose. No, don't get up. I'll find the kitchen. Oh, that's all right. I'll clear these things away. To tell the truth, I'm rather glad to be interrupted, said Oleron. He gathered his work together and put it away. She was already in the kitchen. He heard the running of water into the kettle. He joined her and ten minutes later followed her back to the sitting-room with the coffee and sandwiches on a tray. 
They sat down with the tray on a small table between them. Well, what do you think of the new place? Oleron asked as she poured out coffee. Hmm, anybody'd think you were going to get married, Paul, he laughed. Oh no, but it's an improvement on some of them, isn't it? Is it? I suppose it is, I don't know. I like the last place, in spite of the black ceiling and no water tap. How's Romilly? Oleron thumbed his chin. Mm, I'm rather ashamed to tell you. The fact is, I've not got on very well with it. But it'll be all right on the night, as you used to say. Stuck? Rather stuck. Got any of it you care to read to me? Oleron had long been in the habit of reading portions of his work to Miss Bengough occasionally. Her comments were always quick and practical, sometimes directly useful, sometimes indirectly suggestive. She, in return for his confidence, always kept all mentions of her own work sedulously from him. His, she said, was real work. Hers merely filled space, not always even grammatically. I'm afraid there isn't, Oleron replied, still meditatively dry-shaving his chin. Then he added with a little burst of candour, The fact is, Elsie, I've not written, not actually written, very much more of it, any more of it, in fact. But of course, that doesn't mean I haven't progressed. I progressed, in one sense, rather alarmingly. I'm now thinking of reconstructing the whole thing. Miss Bengough gave a gasp. Reconstructing? Making Romilly herself a different type of woman? Somehow I began to feel that I'm not getting the most out of her. As she stands, I've certainly lost interest in her to some extent. But, but, Miss Bengough protested, you had her so real, so living, Paul. Oleron smiled faintly. He had been quite prepared for Miss Bengough's disapproval. He wasn't surprised that she liked Romilly as she at present existed. She would, whether she realised it or not, there was much of herself in this fictitious creation. Naturally, Romilly would seem real, living to her. But are you really serious, Paul? Miss Bengough asked presently with a round-eyed stare. Quite serious. You're really going to scrap those fifteen chapters? I didn't exactly say that. That fine, rich love scene. I should only do it reluctantly, and for the sake of something I thought better. And that beautiful, beautiful description of Romilly on the shore. It wouldn't necessarily be wasted, he said a little uneasily. But Miss Bengough made a large and windy gesture, and then let him have it. Really, you're too trying, she broke out. I do wish sometimes you'd remember you're human and live in the world. You know, I'd be the last to wish you to lower your standard one inch, but it wouldn't be lowering it to bring it within human comprehension. Oh, you're sometimes altogether too godlike. Why, it would be a wicked, criminal waste of your powers to destroy those fifteen chapters. Look at it reasonably now. You've been working for nearly twenty years. You've now got what you've been working for almost within your grasp. Your affairs are at a most critical stage. Oh, don't tell me. I know you're about at the end of your money. And here you are, deliberately proposing to withdraw a thing that will probably make your name, and to substitute it for something that ten to one nobody on earth will ever want to read, and small blame to them. Really, you try my patience. Oleron had shaken his head slowly as she had talked. It was an old story between them. The noisy, able, practical journalist was an admirable friend up to a certain point. Beyond that, well, each of us knows that point beyond which we stand alone. Elsie Bengough sometimes said that had she had one-tenth part of Oleron's genius, there were few things she couldn't have done, thus making that genius a quantitatively divisible thing, a sort of ingredient to be attracted to or subtracted from in the admixture of his work.
that it was a qualitative thing, essential, indivisible, informing, past her comprehension. Their spirits parted company at that point. Oleron knew it. She didn't appear to know it. Yes, 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 he said a little wearily, by and by. Practically, you're quite right, entirely right, and I haven't a word to say. If I could only turn Romilly over to you, you'd make an enormous success of her, but that can't be, and I, for my part, am seriously doubting whether she's worth my while. You know what that means. What does it mean? she demanded bluntly. Well, he said, smiling wanly, what does it mean when you're convinced a thing isn't worth doing? You simply don't do it. Miss Bengough's eyes swept the ceiling for assistance against this impossible man. What utter rubbish, she broke out at last. Why, when I saw you last, you were simply oozing Romilly. You were turning her off at the rate of four chapters a week. If you hadn't moved, you'd have her three parts done by now. What on earth possessed you to move right in the middle of your most important work? Oleron tried to put her off with a recital of inconveniences, but she wouldn't have it. Perhaps in her heart she partly suspected the reason. He was simply mortally weary of the narrow circumstances of his life. He had had twenty years of it. Twenty years of garrets and roof chambers and dingy flats and shabby lodgings, and he was tired of dinginess and shabbiness. The reward was as far off as ever. Or, if it was not, he no longer cared as once he would have cared to put out his hand and take it. It's all very well to tell a man who's at the point of exhaustion that only another effort is required of him. If he cannot make it, he is as far off as ever. Anyway, Oleron summed up, I'm happier here than I have been for a long time. That's some sort of a justification. And doing no work, said Miss Bengough pointedly. At that, a trifling petulance that had been gathering in Oleron came to her head. Then why should I do nothing but work, he demanded. How much happier am I for it? I don't say I don't love my work when it's done, but I hate doing it. Sometimes it's an intolerable burden that I simply long to be rid of. Once in many weeks it has a moment, one moment, of glow and thrill for me. I remember the days when it was all glow and thrill, and now I'm forty-four and it's becoming drudgery. Nobody wants it. I'm ceasing to want it myself. And if any ordinary sensible man were to ask me whether I didn't think I was a fool to go on, I think I should agree that I was. Miss Bengough's comely pink face was serious. But you knew all that, Paul, many, many years ago, and you still chose it, she said in a low voice. Well, and how should I have known, he demanded. I didn't know. I was told so. My heart, if you like, told me so, and I thought I knew. Youth always thinks it knows. Then one day it discovers that it's nearly fifty. Forty-four, Paul. Forty-four, then and it finds that the glamour isn't in front but behind. Yes, I knew and chose, if that's knowing and choosing, but it's a costly choice we call on to make when we're young. Miss Bengough's eyes were on the floor. Without moving them, she said, You're not regretting it, Paul. Am I not? He took her up. Upon my word, I've lately thought I am. What do I get in return for it all? You know what you get, she replied. He might have known from her tone what else he could have had for the holding up of a finger, herself. She knew, but couldn't tell him, that he could have done no better thing for himself. Had he, any time these ten years, asked her to marry him, she would have replied quietly, Very well. When? He had never thought of it. Yours is the real work, she continued quietly. 
Without you, we jackals couldn't exist. You and a few like you hold everything upon your shoulders. For a minute there was a silence. Then it occurred to Oleron that this was common vulgar grumbling. It wasn't his habit. Suddenly he rose and began to stack cups and plates on the tray. Sorry you catch me like this, Elsie, he said with a little laugh. No, I'll take them out. Then we'll go for a walk if you like. He carried out the tray and began to show Miss Bengough round his flat. She made few comments. In the kitchen she asked what an old faded square of reddish frieze was that Mrs. Barrett used as a cushion for her wooden chair. That! I should be glad if you could tell me what it is, Oleron replied, as he unfolded the bag and related the story of its finding in the window seat. I think I know what it is, said Miss Bengough. It's been used to wrap up a harp before putting it in its case. By Jove, that's probably just what it is, said Oleron. I could make neither head nor tail of it. They finished the tour of the flat and returned to the sitting room. And uh, who lives in the rest of the house, Miss Bengough asked. I dare say a tramp sleeps in the cellar occasionally. Nobody else. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what I think about it, if you like. I should like. You'll never work here. Oh, said Oleron quickly, why not? You'll never finish Romilly here. Why, I don't know, but you won't. I know it. You'll have to leave before you get on with that book. He mused for a moment and then said, Isn't that a little prejudiced, Elsie? Perfectly ridiculous. As an argument, it hasn't a leg to stand on. But there it is, she replied, her mouth once more full of large-headed hat-pins. Oleron was reaching down his hat and coat. He laughed. I can only hope you're entirely wrong, he said, for I shall be in a serious mess if Romilly isn't out in the autumn. 4. As Oleron sat by his fire that evening, pondering Miss Bengough's prognostication that difficulties awaited him in his work, he came to the conclusion that it would have been far better had she kept her beliefs to herself. No man does a thing better for having his confidence stamped at the outset, and to speak of difficulties is in a sense to make them. Speech itself becomes a deterrent act, to which other discouragements accrete until the very event of which warning is given is as likely as not to come to pass. He heartily confounded her, an influence hostile to the completion of Romilly had been born, and in some illogical, dogmatic way women seemed to have, she had attached this antagonistic influence to his new abode. Was ever anything so absurd? You'll never finish Romilly here. Why not? Was this her idea of the luxury that saps the springs of action and brings a man down to indolence and dropping out of the race? The place was well enough. It was entirely charming for the matter, but it wasn't so demoralising as all that. No, Elsie had missed a mark that time. He moved his chair to look around the room that smiled, positively smiled in the firelight. He too smiled, as if pity was to be entertained for a maligned apartment. Even that slight lack of robust colour, he had remarked, was not noticeable in the soft glow. The drawn chintz curtains, they had a flowered and trellised pattern, with baskets and oaten pipes, fell in long, quiet folds to the window seats. The rows of bindings in old bookcases took the light richly. The last trace of sallowness had gone with the daylight, and if the truth must be told, it had been Elsie herself who had seemed a little out of the picture. That reflection struck him a little, and presently he returned to it. Yes, the room had, quite accidentally, done Miss Bengough a disservice that afternoon. It had, in some subtle but unmistakable way, placed her, marked a contrast of qualities. 
Assuming for the sake of argument the slightly ridiculous proposition that the room in which Oleron sat was characterised by a certain sparsity and lack of vigour, so much the worse for Miss Bengough. She certainly erred on the side of redundancy and general muchness, and if one must contrast abstract qualities, Oleron inclined to the austere in taste. Yes, here Oleron had made a distinct discovery. He wondered had he not made it before. He pictured Miss Bengough again as she had appeared that afternoon, large, showy, moistly pink, with that quality of the prized bloom exuding as it was from her, and instantly she suffered in his thought. He even recognised now that he had noticed something odd at the time, and that unconsciously his attitude, even while she had been there, had been one of criticism. The mechanism of her was a little obvious. Her melting humidity was a result of analysable processes, and behind her there had seemed to lurk some dim shape emblematic of mortality. He had never, during the ten years of their intimacy, dreamed for a moment of asking her to marry him. Nonetheless, he now felt for the first time a thankfulness that he hadn't done so. Then suddenly and swiftly his face flamed that he should be thinking thus of his friend. What Elsie Bengough, with whom he had spent weeks and weeks of afternoons, she, the good chum, on whose help he would have counted that all the rest of the world failed him, she whose loyalty to him would not, he knew, swerve as long as there was breath in her, Elsie, to be even in thought dissected thus, he was an ingrate and a cad. Had she been there in that moment, he would have abased himself before her. For ten minutes and more he sat, still gazing into the fire, with that humiliating red fading slowly from his cheeks. All was still within and without, save for a tiny musical tinkling that came from his kitchen, the dripping of water from an imperfectly turned-off tap into the vessel beneath it. Mechanically he began to beat with his finger to the faintly heard falling of the drops. The tiny, regular movement seemed to hasten that shameful withdrawal from his face. He grew cool once more, and when he resumed his meditation, he was all unconscious that he took it up again at the same point. It was not only her florid superfluity of build that he had approached in the attitude of criticism. He was conscious also of the wide differences between her mind and his own. He felt no thankfulness that up to a certain point their natures had ever run companionably side by side. He was now full of questions beyond that point. Their intellects diverged, there was no denying it, and looking back, he was inclined to doubt whether there had been any real coincidence. True, he had read his writings to her, and she had appeared to speak comprehendingly and to the point, but what can a man do, who, having assumed that another sees as he does, is suddenly brought up sharp by something that falsifies and discredits all that has gone before. He doubted all now. It did for a moment occur to him that the man who demands of a friend more than can be given to him is in danger of losing that friend. But he put the thought aside. And he ceased to think, and again moved his finger to the distant dripping of the tap. And now, he resumed by and by, if these things were true of Elsie Bengough, they were also true of the creation of which she was the prototype, Romilly Bishop, and since he could say of Romilly what for very shame he could not say of Elsie, he gave his thoughts rein. He did so in that smiling, fire-lighted room to the accompaniment of the faintly heard tap. There was no longer any doubt about it. He hated the central character of his novel. Even as he had described her physically, she overpowered the senses. 
She was coarse-fibred, over-coloured, rank. It became true the moment he formulated his thoughts. Gulliver had described the Brobdingnagian maids of honour thus, and mentally and spiritually she corresponded, was unsensitive, limited, common. The model, he closed his eyes for a moment, the model struck out through fifteen vulgar and blatant chapters to such a pitch that without seeing the reason he'd been unable to begin the sixteenth, he marvelled that it had only just dawned upon him. And this was to have been his Beatrice, his vision, as Elsie she was to have gone into the furnace of his art, and she was to come out the woman all men desire. Her thoughts were to have been culled from his own finest, her form from his dearest dreams, and her setting wherever he could find one fit for her worth. He had brooded long before making the attempt. Then one day he had felt a stir within him, as a mother feels a quickening, and he had begun to write, and so he had added chapter to chapter, and those fifteen sodden chapters were what he had produced. Again he sat, softly moving his finger, and he bestirred himself. She must go, all fifteen chapters of her, that was settled. For what was to take her place, his mind was a blank, but one thing at a time. A man is not excused from taking the wrong course, because the right one isn't immediately revealed to him. Better would come if it was to come. In the meantime, he rose, fetched the fifteen chapters, and read them over before he should drop them into the fire. But instead of putting them into the fire, he let them fall from his hand. He became conscious of the dripping of the tap again. It had a tinkling gamut of four or five notes, on which it rang irregular changes, and it was foolishly sweet and dulcimer-like. In his mind, Oleron could see the gathering of each drop, its little tremble on the lip of the tap, and the tiny percussion of its fall. Plink, plunk. Minimised almost to inaudibility. Following the lowest note, there seemed to be a brief phrase, irregularly repeated and presently Oleron found himself waiting for the recurrence of this phrase. It was quite pretty. But it did not conduce to wakefulness, and Oleron dozed over his fire. When he awoke again, the fire had burned low, and the flames of the candles were licking the rims of the Sheffield sticks. Sluggishly he rose, yawned, went his nightly round of door-locks and window fastenings, and passed into his bedroom. Soon, he slept soundly. But a curious little sequel followed on the morrow. Mrs. Barrett usually tapped, not at his door, but at the wooden wall beyond which lay Oleron's bed, and then Oleron rose, put on his dressing gown, and admitted her. He was not conscious that as he did so that morning he hummed an air, but Mrs. Barrett, lingering with her hand on the doorknob and her face a little averted and smiling, "'Dear me!' her soft falsetto rose. But that will be a very old tune, Mr. Oleron. I will not have heard it these forty years. What tune? Oleron asked. That tune, indeed, that you was humming, sir. Oleron had his thumb in the flap of a letter. It remained there. I was humming. Sing it, Mrs. Barrett. Mrs. Barrett prut prutted. I have no voice for singing, Mr. Oleron. It was Anne Pugh who was the singer of our family. But the tune will be very old, and it is called... The beckoning fair one. Try to sing it, said Oleron, his thumb still in the envelope, and Mrs. Barrett, with much dimpling and confusion, hummed the air. They do say it was sung to a harp, Mr. Oleron, and it will be very old, she concluded. And I was singing that. 
Indeed you was. I would not be likely to tell you lies. With a very well, let me have breakfast. Ulron opened his letter, but the trifling circumstance struck him as more odd than he would have admitted to himself. The phrase he had hummed had been that which he had associated with the falling from the tap on the evening before. Well, that was The Beckoning Fair One by Oliver Onions, and that represents the first episode we're doing of it, which is sections one to four of the story. It's actually a novella, so it's longer than a short story, and I think, I thought it was going to take about two episodes, but I suspect it'll take three. So uh, hopefully you can maintain your interest. It is a good story. So I'm splitting it up. I did this for Camilla and, of course, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, it's a classic ghost story, uh, The Beckoning Fair One, and has been described as a cut above the standard ghost story. We've done an Oliver Onion story before, The Cigarette Case, which was episode 36. So if you want to go into the show notes and click the link, I'll jump you back to Oliver Onion's quite a different story, really. But he has a very lyrical style, so you'll certainly notice that. This story is a bit of a slow burn, and it's, it is actually really well done, and I've read it before a couple of times. But now when I'm recording it and thinking about it to write notes about, I do appreciate the structure and style of the story. Everything has its place. It's slow, but it's subtle, and it does build. And when, when I look back, everything that happens actually serves the purpose of the story. He's so good at describing the situation his new flat, the sounds of the schoolchildren and the mandolin player. It actually reminded me when I was reading it back of Marcel's Prost's um, Remembrance of Things Past, which is one of my favourite books ever. It took me a year to read it, actually, a long time ago. Probably could read it again if I had enough time. And if I was reading that out on a podcast, that would take me the rest of my life. But So he's very good at his descriptions. He's good at conjuring the characters we... We get a very clear pick, I do anyway, of Paul Oleron uh, always um, rubbing his chin, sort of 44, a little bit pretentious, probably wasted his life <laughs> as a writer, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, pursuing this great talent. But then again, I mean, my daughter's an artist, you know, and I despair of whether she's ever going to earn an, uh, a living, but I do want her to nurture her talent. And so... And she's got an Etsy shop and she's actually making sales. So, you know, I think, I think it is a crime that you don't follow your talent. So maybe he hasn't wasted his life. And then the other, the other uh, character is, uh, I've written Elise Bengoff, but it's Elsie. Elsie must have been an exotic name once, but it reminds me of old ladies. A lot of the old names are coming back, like Ruby and things like that, that I never thought I would hear again. There were sort of my grandmother's friends called things like that. But now there are little girls, Alice and Ruby and Grace and very old fashioned names, which are nice. Elsie, Rini and Elsie may even come back. You never know. I haven't heard any, uh, any little Reenies or Elsies yet. I don't think he's very kind about uh, Elsie. He, de- he describes as bloomy pink, moist. So uh, that conjures a picture, but it's not. She's no great beauty. But she's a good-hearted woman and a sensible woman and a smart woman, and he could do a lot worse than being with Elsie Bengoff, but he doesn't see that because he's too lost in his artistic pretensions. So 
I just note again, I don't, this is one of my obsessions, really. Onions, although his father was from Yorkshire or something, he, he's got a Welsh name and he knows a lot about Wales. And Mrs. Barnett has a Marionith accent. Now, there's not many people who know a Marionith accent if they fell over it. But um, I, I had great fun doing it. I had some friends from uh, Marionith. Elsie Bengough. I mean, it's Bengough. It's redhead, although she isn't. Is she a bit uh, ginger? She's, she's kind of that colour, ruddy. Anyway, so Bengoch, you know, there it is. So I think he knows a lot. He, he died in Wales, of course. Married a Welsh woman. So he knows a lot about Wales, that man. Anyway, the, is it a ghost story? People say, oh, no, it's not a supernatural story. It's just a story of a man going crazy. Well, we've seen this kind of story before in Guy de Montpesson's The Hauler and, of course, in uh, The Yellow Wallpaper and the dividing line between insanity and seeing supernatural things is a, is a well-tried and trusted trope of these things. But I think the place is haunted. I think there is a ghost. And I think the work of the ghost is very subtle. Okay. So when he gets to the flat, we see his taste starts to change. He, he paints it a very pale, wishy-washy, maybe a bit like... Uh, Elsie Bengough, you know, but then he wants to put a lot more colour in it and he doesn't know why his taste's changing. And then he finds the harp cover, which he doesn't know what it is. Elsie has to tell him that. All very subtle, you know, his taste changes. And then when he's listening to the tap dripping, the tap, he doesn't know this, is playing the tune. And he doesn't even know what the tune is, but it gets into his head, so he starts to hum it the next day. And it takes the old Welsh lady to tell him what it is. The Beckoning Fair One. Of course, the name, The Beckoning Fair One, uh, conjures this Jungian archetype, the anima, the seductive woman, you know. There, there is a big anima thing in here. Won't go into that now. But, you know, if you're interested in Jung and you know about Jung, you'll recognise that. So when the tap's dripping, that's when he starts to resent Elsie. And he says the most damning thing about her, that she's common, you know, and she's not up to his artistic pretensions. So this ghost is seducing him by making him think he is something special. Elsie alludes to this anyway, that, you know, he's going to destroy Romilly Bishop, this book he's working on, and write something that no one will want to read. But yet he has a chance with this one of being able to actually be a success. But he, he, his pretensions stop him from worldly success. And he says somewhat disparagingly that if Elsie had got the book, then she would have made a success of it. But he's already told us that she's common. It's like saying, you know, you write a book for the masses and sneer at it, you know. Anyway, so I think it's very subtle how the ghost is working on him. And the ghost is so far unseen, but it's clearly a feminine spirit that is, is jealous of Elsie and tries to drive her down-to-earth, sensible, loving, caring. I mean, she is the great hero of this. He's a bit of a prat, really. But she is the great hero of the story to me. Elsie. I've got a lot of time for her. But there we are. So I think it's a really good story and it takes its time, but it's worth it. So other things. I've got a new book out. I said this last week, London Horror Stories by Tony Walker. And in the um, links, you'll see there's a click through. It's doing modestly well, to be honest, but it can always do better. And so if you did read it and you did go over and click on it and you could do a positive review, I'm not so keen on negative reviews, but you know, in the interest of fairness, I suppose you've got to say what you think. But, you know, positive reviews are very well received. 
Uh, so any support for the London Horror Stories is great. Well, I was sitting there this morning after my meditation and it popped into my head that, you know what? I mean, I've done the Cumbrian ghost stories and it was deliberately this sense of place because I'm very interested in places and the resonance of places. There's certain places to me have a fantastic magic that I'll go back to. Um, Glastonbury's one, Whitby, Venice, Prague. I mean, maybe just because Berlin, maybe just because and London, of course. Maybe they're just Edinburgh. You know, there's millions of them, but they have their own character and they draw you back. I loved California as well, actually. So these stories that are linked to places are really important. So the point I was going to make was that I would really like to do a series. If this does okay, I'd really like to do a seri- be the publisher for a series of regional ghost stories. And I was thinking, oh, we could have New York ghost stories and uh, New Zealand ghost stories and, uh, you know, South African ghost stories, New Orleans ghost stories, Los Angeles ghost stories, Dublin ghost stories. I can't write them all because I've never lived in any of the, well, yeah, actually most of these places I've never lived in. So um, I was thinking of actually doing an anthology, paying the writers at a standard industry rates, putting an anthology together and marketing it because I've got a kind of, I know, I know how to put a book together now. I've got the software. Um, I, can, I know a bit about the um, marketing of it. So, you know, why not? That's an aspiration. So if you would like to be part of that project and you have a story, a regional story. And I think we've got to, you know, if we're, if we're doing a regional story about a small village in the middle of um, Nottinghamshire, there's probably not going to be enough stories to make a volume. We could do Nottinghamshire ghost stories, I suppose. And that's possible, actually, thinking about it. But, you know, New York, yeah, that would work. Sydney, maybe? I don't know. Bangalore? Who knows? Anyway, so that's just an idea. Okay. Next thing to say, oh yeah, it's my usual uh, thing. So uh, I had a lovely gift of actually um, one very kind person bought me, uh, donated 30 quid, which is a heck of a lot of coffee. Uh, and my, I feel enough for Father's Day, my daughter bought me um, a, a coffee thing. So I've been drinking this Uganda. I'm on my Guatemalan coffee at the moment. I was on Uganda. I'm drinking a tremendous amount of coffee since I started doing this, this podcast. Anyway, so, and that's like uh, Kofi, Kofi, K-O-F-I, Tony Walker. You can click through to me there and all Kofi gratefully received. If you, that's for a one-off, really. If you'd like to support, because as we say, this show is only possible by the support of appreciative listeners. So if you are appreciative and you want to show that appreciation, you can do a one-off through Kofi or some people very kindly, and this is what keeps the thing going, um, go to Patreon. Now, on Patreon, I have my Welsh name, Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. So, patreon.com slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D, which is Welsh for a red kite, because at one point in my life, I worked for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds in Wales, and uh, I was the uh, uh, project manager of the Red Kite Project uh, there. So, that was an absolutely cool period of my life. I really enjoyed that. So, anyway, very stormy day here. I don't know if you can hear it blowing around in the background. I live by the sea and it, whew, it's enormous. But uh, so that's the English summer weather, really, just pouring down. But, um, you know, it's actually quite lovely in its own way, even though I do like the sunshine. Ah, rambling. That's time to end. Okay, music by the Hartwood Institute. Institute. Jonathan Sharp, what a man. I've been playing it most uh, during lockdown. 
with Jonathan and a group of people, we've been playing Call of Cthulhu via uh, Roll20. So there you are, another dark secret. Okay, everybody take care. I will speak to you soon with another part of the Beckoning Fair One.